0: Welcome to The Restaurant Boiler Room, Season 5, Episode 2. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today in The Boiler Room, I'll be talking about a few topics, including new trends of franchisors preferring mid-size operators to large PE funds, thoughts from the recent KFC convention, supply and demand of restaurant M&A deals currently, and hiring a generalist versus a specialist investment banker. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk delivered to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, and large investors and franchisors on a monthly basis. Feel free to find our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the boiler room. Okay, so first topic for today, and it's good to, I guess, talk with you guys, right, is, uh, oh, by the way, by the time you hear this, it's probably going to be NCAA basketball season. So my question is, who's going to win it all? You know, my daughter is a freshman at Baylor. They're kind of looking like they might be a two seed. Living down here in the panhandle of Florida, I'm close to Alabama. They seem to be like the number one or two team in the country right now. Uh, some of the big names like Kentucky and Duke and North Carolina have been faltering a little bit this year. So I wonder if you're a fan, what you're thinking about the upcoming NCAA tournament. I'll try to create a couple of analogies. Maybe I'll forget as I talk about this podcast, some basketball analogies, okay? Just in the kind of the vein and in the spirit of basketball season. We were, uh, you know, in was really cool, we were blessed to be able to win a a deal maker of the year award through Franchise Times. They do this every year, and there's usually seven or eight winners. I think there's seven or eight winners this year, but we were the only franchisee restaurant franchisee winner on the list for 2022. We won three deal maker of the year awards in 2021, I believe it was. But for this one here was for it, it was a relatively small deal, but I think it was the nature of the deal that made it such a such a good award to win. It was uh, Taco Bell, 16 Taco Bells in Shreveport. In Bossier City areas of Louisiana, Uh, they were sold from a group Helm Restaurants and sold to a large Pizza Hut franchisee, ADT Pizza and ADT Taco, led by Adam Diamond. He's about 200-unit Pizza Hut franchisee, and it, it was his first foray into the Taco Bell world. And what made the the deal, I think, really. I guess, important is because Taco Bell, you know, typically doesn't allow many new franchisees to enter the brand. They have some pretty strict standards and a lot of popularity with their assets that they sell. So this this transaction was kind of one of the first that I know of, of a, new, a brand new franchisee coming into the Taco Bell space in a while. And, uh, you, you know, it was uh, for that reason, I think it was noteworthy. But uh, you know the deal took place. Uh, you know Steve Helm and his family were a longtime family-owned business of over forty years, forty-eight years. He had been associated with Taco Bell in the corporate and then on the franchisee side. He represented what a lot of these franchisees are. You know, first-generation franchisee. His son was in the business. It ran great operations, you know, faithfully operated in kind of a mid-level area of the country, which is where a lot of these restaurants still do really well, especially in the southeastern United States and kind of, you know, rural and then like semi-suburban or semi-rural markets where QSR restaurants just really continue to thrive because of their appeal and also because of their price point. And so, uh, you know, he had operated, that their family had operated this business in this area for a long time. The the process we went through was a good one. And, uh, you know, and Adam and his team ended up being the buyers. And they, as a result of this transaction now, are in two brands, uh, Pizza Hut and Taco Bell. And, and as you all may know from talking with us, we are, try to be charitable whenever we close a deal. In this particular deal, we gave a donation to the Blue Angels Foundation to honor our nation's heroes and to help wounded veterans through transitional housing and counseling and PTSD resolution. So that was that deal. And it did win a Deal Maker of the Year Award for Franchise Times in 2023. Stay tuned. I think sometime in maybe April, late April, I believe, I'm going to be doing a you know kind of a a panel through restaurant monitor and franchise times to talk about the uh, to talk about the the deal and uh, you might you might learn a little bit you know if you're interested about how it happened and how it transpired and kind of what were the hot deal points and things like that so kudos to those two parties and and to the process Now, the second topic I want to talk about a little bit today was kind of a new trend that I've started to notice. And for the last, and and gosh, I've been kind of, a you know, unbridled has been a a victim of the success of all this. But, you know, for the last like seven or eight years, and really it's been like a 20-year kind of situation where the franchise industry in general, but the restaurant franchisee industry, you know, in more particular, and maybe even more particular would be kind of like legacy, large, chunky QSR businesses they have like three or four thousand units or more, right? So they have a lot of franchisees. For the last twenty years, we've been on a trend of consolidation. I've talked about this in prior years, of, you know, podcasts. But it started with Ma and Pa Kettle with the American Gothic picture. If you picture that, you know, with their suspenders on and the pitchfork in their hand on the farm in Iowa, deciding to become a one-unit franchisee, right? And then it, and then over time they you know, they end up either giving it to their kids or they, they sell it and, you know, sell it to the neighboring franchisee who now has, you know, he buys it and he had two stores. Now he has three. And, you know, eventually the guy who has three buys two or three more of retiring franchisees. You know, you kind of get the picture and all of a sudden this this franchisee has 10 stores and the average franchisee in, the, in some of these systems goes over the course of from the 1980s to the early 2000s, maybe from, you know, three or four units on average, per franchisee to ten units per franchisee, with several franchisees being twenty and thirty unit unit, unit franchisees at that time. Start seeing the initial stages of private equity in the early two thousands, just really on a small basis, several small deals in the um system, particularly, and then you know it really started to explode when franchisors started to go asset light in the you know coming out of the Great Recession and the. In like the 2012 or 13 timeframe when they were selling corporate markets to go from 20% corporate ownership down to 5% corporate ownership, right? And doing that, you know, these franchisors always kept big, you know, metropolitan markets so they could test market their products and have concentration of labor and wage. So they might sell Phoenix, or they might sell Orlando, or they might, you know, these markets and coming out of the great recession, they You know the people that you know. The existing franchisees didn't have, in many cases, the finances to be able to handle those deals. In drop these young private equity groups and family offices and private investors that um, that are run by operators that have experience in the brands, and that started it. We'll get into 2015 and you start seeing some new entrants from kind of Wall Street, young Harvard MBA types get into the business, raise money and start buying businesses. And then over the last six or seven years, man, it's been a flurry of activity and they've been the type, the ones that have gone into a system. I mean, I'm just generalizing here, but they might buy like 30 stores, you know, so they might come in as a, here's an analogy, they may come in as like a, you know, a point guard, right? But a point guard is great at bringing the ball up the court and seeing the vision but may not be good at shooting a three-point shot or taking it in down low, right? So after the first acquisition, they pick themselves up a power forward and then a center and then a shooting guard, right? And now all of a sudden they have you know, 150 restaurants in three or four markets and they've got a complete team or a complete business that they've built out. And so that has been happening over six or seven years. A lot of brands have gone heavy into that model. Some have been very, very slow to go into that model. I mean, you could find like, I'm just throwing names out, like a Culver's brand, which is largely a mom and pop brand. Same with Chick-fil-A. You know, just as two examples of brands that maybe preferred the one and two and three unit operators, right? And had more control at the corporate level, smaller operators who are fully invested in the business. But a lot of these large QSR concepts went the other way, which is they were, and some of them, you know, fell in love with private equity and big family offices. And they wanted to actively put these big deals in the hands of 200 stores in the hands of these franchise, you know, these new franchise entities. What was the reason to do it? They felt, perhaps erroneously so, that they were well-capitalized and that they would spend their money on remodeling and new development, right? And then by shrinking the number of franchisees in their system, they would reduce their g and have easier streamlined management of the franchise realm of, of their businesses. You know, what, what people probably short-sightedly didn't see is that private equity groups are the people with the money want to spend that money less than anybody I've ever seen. I mean, most private equity people that I know are some of the most tight-fisted with their money of anybody I've ever seen. So just because they have the money doesn't mean that they'll spend it. Most of the time, they won't spend it. Matter of fact, most of the time, franchisees, you know, mid-sized franchisees are more willing to spend their money than private equity groups, right? They want to borrow it all and do it all with debt financing, and they want to push out obligations and cut GNA and all that stuff that produces good returns. So we run into you know some brand challenges, some competition challenges, some challenges during covid Reduce traffic, increase food costs, labor's a problem. And then all of a sudden, you know, we have those shocks to the industry and some of the brands that have been heavily private equity driven where there haven't been sales growth. What do the private equity groups do? A lot of them are they uh, reduce capital spending, reduce R&M, don't build new units. And the next thing you know is you have this uh, fight with the franchisor or you have stores that are unprofitable or you have big sale leasebacks on the stores that are we were done at 8% of sales but are now 10 or 11% of sales or you have like bad deferred maintenance in the stores cuz financials are so bad in that case you you, you have a, a business that customers don't appreciate anymore right it looks tired so all that backdrop to say i think two brands notably that and i won't name them that that i that we do business with at Unbridled, i've just noticed the franchisors are, you know, perhaps actively. And this is third hand; it's not second. I mean, in one, in one case, I've seen it second hand. The other two or three cases, it's it's third hand. But I've been hearing through others that these two brands are wanting to take the big deals and break them up into smaller deals, and instead of instead of having two and 300 unit operators, they want, you know, 30 to 50 unit operators. I and mean, they think people, you know, men and women who, who are franchisees who uh, would, would know their markets, right? That, that might, that, you know, you might be from, I don't know, you know, call it Des Moines, Iowa. And you, you know, you know, most of the towns within 30 minutes of Des Moines, Iowa in north, south, east, west directions from where you live, right? And you know, the people in the stores, you know, the RGMs, you travel to the stores, you might even know the, the band that's there playing or the cheerleaders that are cheering at the halftime of the basketball, high school basketball school game, right? So that may be a model that we see coming back into our system. Coincidentally, even though, like I said, we've been kind of a victim of this because our company and and others have been part of the consolidation in our industry. I have said over and over again over the years that I think um, in general, businesses are best, uh, these franchise businesses are best operated by the 30 to 50 unit franchisee independent. Um, They're the ones who Have the right balance between the right capital in the business and, you know, to be able to support sensible growth and remodeling, but yet touch the stores and have a level of sophistication, but have a level of hominess to their business. So I don't know that this will be a trend in all brands, but I do think it's maybe a trend that uh, we're seeing in a couple of brands that could be exacerbated, especially if we have some continued struggles. We have pre-bankruptcies and bankruptcies and things like this that would naturally lend themselves to a condition where assets could be split up by market. And we see that continued trend too geographically where you have these larger private equity franchisees if they do struggle, where they might have markets that are 600 miles from one another. That may be a driving force in the franchise or trying to get in the way to, to break up those assets. One thing I do know, if you stick around the MA business long enough to use another basketball analogy, since we're talking about the NCAA tournament, right? It's kind of like, you know, you ever watched uh, like black and white basketball in the 50s, right? And, and black and white basketball on TV, you see like Bob Cousy, you know, playing on those, all the, and Wilt Chamberlain playing on all those, uh, uh, you know, Boston Celtics teams. And those guys have tall socks up to their knees and really short, tight shorts, right? And then you fast forward to like the early 2000s and you watch Kobe playing for the Lakers that guy in the in the mid 2000s was wearing shorts that came down to his ankles almost right his baggy everything was baggy and short socks and now we're kind of somewhere in between right so you stick around long enough and you see the cycle kind of repeat itself i guess it'll probably be sometime soon again when we see the tall socks and the short in the short pants on the basketball court. Same kind of deal with M&A, right? What with, with, with starts independent usually comes together and builds and consolidates, and, and maybe then that there's a, a reason, whether it's externalities or brand specific, but you see things break up a little bit, and then you see things kind of go back to maybe midsize or smaller franchisees for a while, and then you'll see the trend probably recycle itself again. So that's uh, something to keep out, keep an eye out for. Now, the thoughts from the recent KFC convention, I just got back from Austin, you know KFC. It's it's interesting. I, I don't I don't know this. Someone told me that they said that KFC was in the Wall Street Journal recently because, they, or maybe months ago, because they had so much turnover. Right? They had their president leave. They had their CFO leave. They had their chief operating officer leave. Their chief development officer left, and their chief legal officer left. I believe, if I'm if I'm right about that, most of the senior executives on the KFC team left at the corporate level which is you know quite surprising isn't it to see you know unless there's like major distress or problems you you don't see that much turnover at the executive team level so the new team is it was there at Austin uh, a lot of new faces and a lot of a lot of new positions there and and I think it's very much a wait and see to see what the what the team will produce it just feels like a new uh, you know a new chapter for the KFC brand so you know, watch it with a little bit of, a, of an interesting eye to see how the new management team is put together. It was, it feels like it was kind of hastily done with people that have some good experience, but uh, but but clearly going to have to grow into their new roles. In terms of the franchisees in that brand, I think they've had most of them have had a couple of good months of sales and profits. You know, 2022 is a bad year for KFC, not just KFC, but a lot in the chicken space, right? I mean, we do see that, you know, that like chicken wing costs have dropped by 50%. You know, that's not a substantial part of what KFC does, but like brands you've seen publicly, Wingstop has tons of uh, food cost tailwind. I mean, they were running food and paper costs at almost like 50% at one point at the early part of last year and here we are now you know and they're at like 35 percent right so it's just like remarkably big drop in in food costs for for boneless wings that doesn't pertain to ksc as much you know what what we see is that the chicken prices have stayed high and we're all talking about the price of eggs having doubled or even more than doubled over the past several months so i think uh, you know the the chicken segment in general chicken on the bone and chicken tenders and chicken sandwiches and such have undergone undergone quite a bit of a food cost challenge we'll see what what happens with it but largely i would say hopefully some good news on the on the menu for kfc up you know upcoming franchisees seem to be a little weary but hoping for you know kind of a rebound in the third quarter and fourth quarter of this year i did see a lot of lenders at the convention and i'll tell you i have never seen the environment the way it is for lenders you know i think a lot of these lenders are at these conventions you know these restaurant lenders you know, at any restaurant convention, I mean, some of the ones where the brands aren't going well, you may only see a couple of lenders there, but like, it's something like a, you know, a Taco Bell or a KFC convention, you should expect to see 12 to 15 restaurant lenders there. And I've never seen such a lack of deal flow. I think they're very, very hungry. And, uh, you know, with, with Deposits dropping precipitously in a lot of these banks because they're not offering any interest, right? People like me and you and everybody else is pulling their money out of banks and putting them in financial institutions that are T-bills, you know, where they can get four and a half to five percent interest. In today's market, it's you know, that's it's leaving these banks with fewer deposits and fewer deposits mean that they can't loan as much money, right? And so um, I think we're going to see a a condition where that married with a lack of deal flow is going to mean a lot of our, a lot of my good friends and and colleagues in the the lender side of the business will maybe out of a job by the end of the year, unless this thing picks up from a deal flow perspective in the last, in the next few, three to six months or so. What it means for a franchisee or someone looking to borrow is this. I mean, I think you got to do your due diligence with the banks. Number one, I mean, you know, a lot of them, some of them are not, are just not lending. They're showing up to conventions and taking phone calls, but they're just at the end of the day, their credit committees are like, I, we can't lend any money. We're not lending any money. We're staying in our lane. We're servicing our existing loans, but we're not adding, adding anything new because our deposits are dropping and our risk tolerance is increasing or decreasing. That's, I think, what you're, you're going to see. I think there's going to be a lot more scrutiny on which bank is going to do which deal and which brand. I mean, there are still you know banks that are lending up to six times lease adjusted leverage, you know, at higher interest rates. I mean, as you see the interest expense increase on these loans, you're going to see fixed charge coverage ratios be a bigger deal in the limiting factor to advances on loans and covenants, uh, even more so than lease adjusted leverage. And you're just going to see a bifurcation of people doing deals. Talked to one lender who said, "I, you know, I want to do do deals. that have a little bit of a nick or a little bit of hair in it. You know what I mean? With the cries, it requires some creativity." I appreciated that from him. You know, um, you know, some of the other lenders were 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 you know eager. I think you're going to find that there's that that you'll, there will be liquidity in the market. Uh, you know, it might be expensive, but you're going to find liquidity to borrow money in the market just because there's a lot of aggressive lenders there, kind of like dogs with their tongues hanging out, right? And and no uh, and no deal flow. So um, so so a careful planning on that side should should continue to yield some results and. Um, you, you know, just be in touch regularly with your lender as you as you look to make acquisitions. And you know, we always have an opinion if you want to call us. That was the KFC convention. And another thing I want to talk about today, let's see, supply and demand of restaurant M&A deals. Talked about this last last time, but I think I'll just continue to roll through this almost every month since it's been such a crazy time. I mean, golly, I can remember for the first 15 years I was in the business. I mean, we had changes in the amount of deal flow and the cyclicality of it over the course of several years, right? But not like month to month like it is now. It just seems like with COVID, everything's going faster. Um, but but I, I think right now, I continue to see that supply and demand is big time in the in a favorable standpoint for for people who have things to sell. We've had I, I've got three you know deals that I can just kind of talk broadly about. One in Taco Bell, one in Burger King, and one in Wingstop that we're you know current, currently doing decent size act, you know you know act, activity. Um, put these deals on the market. Everyone says there's no deal flow. We put them on the market. Crazy amounts of offers, even even in the you know I won't tell you which one of the three, but even in the brand of, of those three that's struggling the most, has, still had like six or seven people wanting to buy those businesses, which which was shocking, which was shocking to me. And you know in the you know now, you know now the other businesses are probably going to get ten to fifteen offers, right? Just in terms of and the valuations have been have been rising in some of these brands, you know um, Taco Bell, namely. And it's interesting. It's like how can the valuation rise? How can the EBITDA multiple increase? When the interest rates are now sitting, you know, your variable interest rates are sitting at like seven and a half percent, probably going to eight percent, right? Like it doesn't necessarily make sense. And I think I just come back to the equation of there's or to the explanation of there's no, not a lot of deals in the market. A lot of these big buyers are sitting on tons of ERC money, right? That they're looking to spend. And, you know, I, I mean, it's like, um, you know, if you're sitting, if you're parked a bunch of ERC money at three percent, you know, it's like, And it's just sitting there and a deal comes up that could be interesting to you and a great brand that you really like. I mean, so what's the big deal to go pay a little bit more for it, you know, to be able to get, I mean, even if the returns are lower because the price is higher, if you're getting 10 or 11%, right? So I think there's a little bit of that phenomenon going on in the marketplace. And for that reason, even though the conditions overall aren't great, I would say again, from the last three deals that we've seen over the last month, I would say I would absolutely tell you that. Um, the supply demand curve is tilting these deals in a, in a way that I would not have expected and actually making the pricing and the security of the deals way stronger than any of us probably would, would expect at this point in time. Now, that's a very temperamental thing, isn't it? It's like, um, here you go. It's like. Nate Oates at the University of Alabama basketball team, right? He is the master of analytics. Like 3% of his shots were non-layup, non-three-pointer, non-free-throw shots, right? I mean, he tells his team actively to not shoot the ball unless it's a layup, a three-point shot, or you get fouled. Really wild type of a way to to coach, but that's analytics in basketball, man. So it's like, you know, that per the equations and everything else is going to yield the highest opportunity to win a ball game. Um, but, but, but that makes the assumption that, that not everybody else is running the same type of offense, doesn't it? Or the same type of defense. And, and so initially you start seeing that being the case, but then when everyone else implements the same type of offensive strategy it. uh, it starts to 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 change and and you start stop winning. So I think that's a kind of if that's a weird analogy of supply and demand. I think like right now we don't have a lot of supply in the market. If supply increases, if we have more teams playing this crazy analytic basketball, then like the success of high, high results process, you know, MA processes might might drop a little bit. So keep keep that in mind as you think about how things you know, transpire. I do think there's going to be a flood of M&A activity towards the end of the year because I'm just starting to hear that a lot from franchisees who are tired but 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 have a P&L that's still not ready to to be, you know, uh, emblematic of what their business has been over the last 20 years and they're just like I got to wait a little bit longer. Um, so that's supply and demand. Okay. A next topic would be just to chat a little bit about musings in the pizza business. I've seen a couple of you know, kind of earnings calls here in the last few weeks. It seems like both uh, Domino's and Papa John's are experiencing some difficult times with margin pressure and, and some pretty significant same-store sales pressure, right, or, or changes in same-store sales based on what is perceived to be a, you know, lower consumer demand and then like a return to normalcy, uh, you know, from people, uh, you know, eating in maybe, which, which may be taking a little bit of the dining, you know, the, the, the delivery business. Um, and, and interestingly, my BY Pizza Hut is doing pretty well over the last four or five months, and, and they're kicking out some pretty darn strong results right now as a result of their melts promotion and, and then also of their dine-in business, right, which may, which may be kind of doing better comparably than the de- delivery business. And I think another reason why the pizza delivery business might be struggling a little bit is the you know, the flourishing delivery business, these third-party delivery apps and, you know, and, and, and everything in uh, other QSR. One of the things I heard at KFC, which I've heard at tons of other conventions, is like the higher check average, the higher loyalty, you know, the better, you know, the better investment criteria. All this stuff of going, uh, of, of having delivery, uh, you know, in digital businesses, especially the digital businesses, and everyone's working on getting their app and, you know, and kind of taking bodies out of the dining room and out of the back, you know, out of the front of the house from a labor perspective too, and putting them in the delivery business and the carryout business. So. I think that's probably hurting pizza a little bit too. All in all though, like I said, Pizza Hut seems to be doing well and maybe it's because of their dine-in business. Everyone, everyone's kind of you know cursing the old dine-in business. Uh, let's use another basketball analogy. So the dine-in business would kind of be like the old seven foot, two inch, 325 pound center who can barely run up and down the floor. Right. Um, you know, you don't really like him when you're playing this brand of basketball that, that like one dribble pass, three passes and then shoot. Right. But, when the old guy gets, you know, starts cobbling down the lane, and you slow the game down a little bit in the final few possessions, guess who's getting the rebounds, right? And guess who becomes all of a sudden more valuable. <laughs> so maybe that's maybe that's what's happening in the pizza business um, with the dining business flourishing. So good for them. Really, really, really glad to see that they're doing well. We'll see how how that all all transpires. And then, uh, you know, one other comment I would make is is just uh, we I, I've seen quite a bit of this over the last three or four months. As these restaurant businesses get into the hands of these private equity and family offices, particularly the private equity groups, and they grow by acquisition up to 50, 100, 150, 200 locations, you know, and, and they keep growing, um, they're typically backed by you know, private equity groups who are called on quite frequently out of New York, and so, you know, in, you know, in LA, San Francisco, New York, wherever, uh, Chicago, um, by these, by these uh, generalist uh, investment banking groups. And these generalist investment banking groups have like, you know, you might picture having, you know, an office in three or four different cities. They have a bunch of, uh, you know, bunch of folks and they have, you know, specific departments for each one of of seven or eight or nine different segments, uh, you, you know, and, and so they utilize that those relationships to be able to call on the private equity groups and offer them, you know, services whether it's investment management services, investment banking services across all their different uh, investments, not just any particular investment. And for that reason, a lot of the a lot of the uh, you know big private equity groups are you know look increasingly at hiring generalists to to uh, do their to do their investment banking work when it's when it's large when it's large. But you know, certainly in the franchise space, I would just say. Um, that the specialist investment banker, and I know this is a this is a plug, but the specialist investment banker, like Unbridled, just knows intuitively how to do these specific transactions so much better than someone who doesn't spend the time in it. And um, I think the perceived value uh, is is a little bit is a little bit backwards. You know, a specialist investment banker is probably worth 10 percent more than a generalist on a franchise QSR deal. Really, I mean, I don't know. Let's just throw it out there. You know, um, because the the know how. The knowledge of the franchisor and the knowledge of how the processes transact, which is very sp- specific in a QSR business, right? Because you've got a franchisor who actually owns the trademark of the business that you're that you're operating. Um, these types of these types of uh, industry specific, very niche things are important when you look at trying to keep your closing percentage in the 80s or 90 percent. And uh, and get the highest price and, and actually get the deal to transact. So watch watch a, I think what I think will happen is you're going to watch a trend towards the specialist investment banker. Um, even the, you know because we have seen in the last six months several failed processes from generalist investment bankers stepping into large investment banking de- you know uh, franchise M and A deals in our space. I mean, you call me for example. We close ninety percent of the deals we we, we take, right? But, uh, you know, I, I know that the I can give you, I, I won't mention them here, but I can just give you several examples of these generalists coming in and promising the moon and then their deals don't close, right? So what would you rather be told in anything in life? Would you rather be told something that could be true, but has a 30% chance of actually happening? Or would you rather be told something that is is true, you know, and has a 90% chance of happening? Um, you know, the when you sell a business, and I want everyone to hear this, when you sell one of these businesses, it takes a huge toll on you i have watched lots of friends and clients struggle with their health and struggle with you know their overall well-being their family relationships their partner relationships their employee relationships when going through the process of selling a company. It is not easy and you only want to do it once. You don't want to take the decision lightly, throw it out there and see what happens because you will do more damage to your body, your health, your emotions, your relationships And then you you have even the biggest part of it, two big parts of it. Number one, uh, your employees find out about it and then they all quit or they don't trust you anymore if you don't actually go through with the sale, number one. And then number two, the franchisor knows that you are on the chopping block, which means that they're not going to kick you any favors, right? I mean, they're going to look to you to be the franchisee of the year next year if you were looking to sell your business but couldn't last year. So you just got to be careful about how you plan these things. That's one of the one of the comments I'll just keep beating on here is that most people who own a business have very little understanding of how taxing it is to sell the business. It is a big endeavor. And so do not take it lightly and do not chase for the stars, you know, because if you try to chase for the stars, you're going to end up with a, a lack of success and then you're going to have a heart attack, right? Or something, something like this. I, you know, I don't I don't take that lightly. But uh, just wanted to paint that picture for everybody. Okay, next month we're you know you, by the time you hear the next podcast, I'm hoping that we're going to be able to pull a, a good friend of mine, SG Ellison, onto the onto the uh, webinar, and we'll make it a podcast. And SG runs a 300 unit Taco Bell business uh, as franchisee out in California, down to uh, over to Nevada, and then over to Kansas City and some other areas too that I'm sure I'm I'm forgetting. But their story is a really cool story of like maybe ten years ago starting out with no stores, being real estate people, and then building it into a into a formidable you know franchise business that's now one of the biggest in the you know in the country. So I hope that gets to come to fruition, and uh, I think it will, and and I know you'll appreciate it. So please tune in, and good luck watching the NCAA tournament this next couple of weeks. Right. We have the Sun Belt Tournament in Pensacola here this week, so I'm going to sneak over and try to watch some of these kind of lesser names play, like Coastal Carolina and University of Louisiana Monroe. And so I'm a basketball junkie. Uh, enjoy it. Thanks for tuning in and uh, hope to talk with you again soon. Thanks so much for entering the Boiler Room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes webinars, podcasts, videos, white papers, and a list of our past M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital Advisors, LLC, give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom.